Dr. Jim Bohr, along with his wife Norma, have been actively involved for over 50 years in spreading the gospel through the pastoring of local churches and teaching at universities and seminaries throughout the United States. Today, Dr. Bohr is focused on impacting Christ's followers around the world through Bible Coach Online, a division of Golden Minutes Ministry. During his career, Dr. Bohr spent over 28 years leading both large and small churches as senior pastor. But it's those first eight years of ministry that hold a special place in the life of our church. It was in July of 1962 that Dr. Jim Bohr accepted the call to be our very first senior pastor. They were in West Virginia and we got a letter, special delivery, that um, they would come as our pastor. Wow, what a gifted man. I think this was his first church, but I'm not sure, fresh out of Dallas. Jim Bohr was, uh, was really fantastic. I always said that with a last name by the name of Borer, you better be good, and Jim was. Well, there was a lot of excitement in the church because this was the first man that we had ever even dreamed about having for a pastor, and here he was, a Dallas graduate with a doctor's degree. And we're just so impressed with the Word of God that was so open opened up in such a winsome way, and the Spirit of God working through Jim and his word. Today, Dr. Bohr's passion continues. Through conferences, Bible studies, sermons, newsletters, and the use of social media, he provides believers with trusted biblical resources to live the joyful, abundant Christian life. Dr. Bohr was and always will remain committed to helping believers around the world become mature, confident followers of Jesus Christ. Would you all welcome up to this platform Dr. Jim Bohr. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> we, uh, for my wife and family, we just want to really thank you for letting us be part of your 50th uh, anniversary as a church. My son asked me this morning if I thought when we started Scottsdale Bible with 13 people uh, 50 years ago, if we uh, imagined it would be anything like this. And I said, uh, well, in those days there were few, very few megachurches. And uh, so I never even thought about anything like this. Uh, I was so busy uh, in those early days, the church grew very fast even then, and I was so busy like a runaway horse trying to get the reins that I didn't have time to think of anything else. And uh, I congratulate you. Uh, how blessed you have been with uh, several great pastors and including the one that is here now, Jamie. We just really, really praise God for him. As, uh, as the video said, I've been uh, a pastor of uh, a church in Long Beach, California, <clears throat> and uh, traveling 
For about 20 years, I traveled to almost every state uh, in the Union and several uh, foreign countries. Sometime my uh, wife went with me, and uh, it uh, was a great time. People often ask me if we have any, any airline experiences to tell. <clears throat> well, there are a few, but uh, the, the one that sticks in my mind was once a, a, a man was sitting beside me in a relatively small plane, and the uh, flight assistant brought me a cup of coffee with cream and uh, him a uh, can of beer, which was fine, and uh, until he uh, started to open the beer. And it must have been warm and shaken up because when he pulled that little tab, uh, it uh, went all over my suit. And he was so embarrassed, he grabbed a, a, a napkin there and started to help me clean up, and he knocked the coffee onto my suit. So, so I, I got up and went, went back to the uh, restroom there, the little uh, uh, room, and I tried to, I used every piece of paper involved. I used every piece of paper there, trying to get this out of my suit because I was going to be met by a couple of pastors, and, and the schedule was very close, where I was going to go immediately to a convention center where I was to speak to the group. So I'm trying to get all this off the suit that I have on, and I step out, and the little flight attendant is handing me a couple of tickets to get my uh, suit dry cleaned, and I tell her, I've gonna be met by a couple pastors, I've gotta go immediately talk. I, 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 I smell like, a, like I've been, <laughs> like a brewery, and I look like I've been wallowing around on a bar floor, and, and she says to me, well, I could give you some of my perfume. <laughs> We are looking at the seven letters to seven churches. I listened to Pastor Jamie's presentation of Ephesus and must admit I cannot do as well. The church that is the recipient of this week's letter is proof positive that it's possible for a congregation to have nothing and still be truly wealthy spiritually. The passage that I'm speaking of, and you might turn there in your Bible, is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. There we read, our Lord is speaking. John is writing what, uh, what our Lord is, is uh, writing to the churches and he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, this is verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that you are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As you read the letter to Smyrna, it's interesting to consider the story of one young man that would have heard the letter when it was first read to the congregation. His name was Polycarp. He would have been about 20 when John's letter arrived with his fateful message, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He went on to become the pastor and a fearless leader of the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is the only city of the seven churches to survive until today. Today it's called Izmir in Turkey. Smyrna was a church founded by Paul during his third missionary journey, somewhere between 53 and 56 A.D. Several things I want you to note about this letter that, that Jesus writes to the church of Smyrna. First, I want you to note that it's the shortest of the seven letters. And second, it's only one of two churches in which our Lord gives no negative criticism. The only other comma, uh, uh, one that is commended without any criticism is the church in Philadelphia. Let me tell you about the city where the church of Smyrna ministered. It was located about 30 miles north of Ephesus and would have been the second stop a first century postman would have made in his rounds to deliver these seven letters. He would be moving in somewhat of a semicircle, clockwise, beginning at Ephesus and ending at Laodicea. It was said that of all the cities of Asia, Smyrna was the loveliest. In fact, people often referred to the city of Smyrna as the flower of Asia. Sometimes it was called the crown of Asia because at its center was a high hill, and around the summit of the hill was a ring of beautiful temples, to pagan gods, of course, but beautiful temples that made the hill look like a huge head with a crown on top. Smyrna had a stadium in which famous games were held each year. It had a magnificent library and one of the largest theaters in Asia Minor. Plus, it claimed to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. Smyrna had a great harbor. Being located at the end of a small finger of water, it could be completely shut off by a huge chain that could be pulled across its mouth. So it was a very safe place for merchant ships to anchor. After being destroyed twice, Smyrna was rebuilt once by Alexander the Great himself, or at least by his generals. When Smyrna was rebuilt that last time, they did it in style. It was a planned city with large, wide streets, streets that were made of stones laid in beautiful patterns. And the fact that this city had been destroyed and then rebuilt in such grand style led people to call it the city of life because it had come back from the dead, so to speak. It was a city that was very loyal to Rome, and this was widely known. We're told that the Smyrnaites were very proud to be part of the Roman Empire. Patriotism ran high in those broad cobblestone streets. Smyrna was the first city, for example, in the world to erect a temple to the goddess Roma, 
a temple for the worship of the spirit of Rome. Then in AD 26, when all the cities of Asia Minor, 11 of them, were competing for the privilege of erecting a temple to the godhead of the emperor Tiberius, Smyrna won, even over Ephesus. At the end of the first century, Smyrna had about 200,000 residents, and a large portion of them were Jews. Jews who were eager to do two things. First, they wanted to please Rome, because, you see, Rome had exempted the Jews from Caesar worship. Secondly, they were eager to give the Christians, or the Nazarenes, a hard time. They called them Nazarenes because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. Let me put in an aside. Hatred, persecution, ridicule, and stereotyping toward Jewish people as a people is never, ever justified. Our main disposition should be that of the Apostle Paul when he prayed, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel might be saved. Now, in the beginning, emperor worship was nothing more than a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But toward the end of the century, in the days of Domitian, when John writes the Revelation, Caesar worship was compulsory. It became the law to worship the emperor. So understand, once a year, every citizen of Rome had to burn a pinch of incense and say two words, Caesar Curios, which, was, which meant in English, Caesar is Lord. In other words, he is God. They had to say it out loud. When they did this, they received a certificate, a certificate that required to get a job to make a living, a certificate that was required uh, by every citizen in order to get a job. Christians, however, would take the little incense and uh, standing in the arena would drop it on the sand and instead of saying Caesar Curios, they would cry out Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. They didn't get their certificate. Now with that background, let's look at the letter itself. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the readers, I want to talk about the author, and then I want to talk about the content. First, let's look at the readers. Verse 9 says three things about them. First, it says they were undergoing severe tribulation. Now, the word that we translate tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And it's a forceful word that means pressure, literal or figurative pressure. But the pressure spoken here of is intense pressure, the kind that would be used to execute a man by making him lie down on the ground and then placing a great rock on him such that the weight of the rock gradually crushes the life out of him. That's the kind of pressure or tribulation the Christians in Smyrna were enduring. And it was for one reason, because of their loyalty to Christ. The pagans were giving them a hard time for their refusal to worship the emperor. And the Jews were giving them a hard time because they worshiped Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. 
It's interesting to note that the word Smyrna means myrrh, which is a sweet-smelling spice. But to get the sweet smell, the spice had to be crushed. The fragrance or the richness of Smyrna's powerful testimony came out of the crushing pressure of its suffering. Second, not only were they undergoing tribulation, they were enduring extreme poverty. Now, there are two Greek words for poverty in Scripture. One is the word of a man who has to work for a living. He has to work to eat, and his income is so low that he can barely make it. He has nothing extra. He just gets by. He buys day-old bread and is dependent on charity for his clothing. But that is not the Greek word for poverty that is used here. In fact, the word for poverty that is used here means beggary. It means absolute and utter destitution. The people this poor were not getting by. They were starving. Many of them were homeless. When your executive secretary asked me for a title for this particular message, I gave her a prosaic title uh, that uh, said something about Smyrna. It may be in your bulletin. I don't know. What I should have said was, let's call it Poor Little Rich Church. <laughs> That's what it really was. <laughs> in fact, the people had been deprived of the right to work and make a living. None of the trade guilds would hire them because they refused to worship Caesar and insisted on following Jesus. So they did not have the required certificate. So these believers were dirt poor. Yet Jesus said to them, you are rich. You have a powerful testimony. You are producing amazingly mature believers. I wish that were true today. Vance Havner writes, it's not easy to preach on Smyrna nowadays. The average American congregation is in no mood to appreciate such a church. In a day of quick prosperity, it is not easy to interest a well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed Sunday morning crowd in the Smyrna brand of loyalty. We're not interested in what it costs to be a Christian, but what we can get by being one. In a day of health, wealth, and happiness in 10 easy lessons or money refunded, for many, Christianity has become simply a better way to get rich and have a big time. We make a bellboy out of the Lord and a Santa Claus out of the Almighty. Unfortunately, Havner is right. These days, many believers have a warped sense of wealth. They focus on the temporary treasures of the world instead of the eternal treasures of heaven. Are you like the person that a poet wrote about? He wrote, I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gain while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store, but he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. I never knew till one day by a grave how vain are the things that we spend life to save. I did not know till a friend from above said, Rich is he who is rich in God's love. So the believers 
In Smyrna, we're enduring tribulation and poverty, but that's not all. Tribulation, poverty, and third, they were enduring slander. Slander and ridicule. And most of this came from the Jews who should have been worshiping Jehovah, but in reality were worshiping Satan himself. Here are some examples of the slanderous gossip that they spread. Jews spread the rumor that Christians were cannibals since Christians ate communion that they said was representative of the body and blood of Jesus. Because the Christians called their common meal the agape feast or love feast, the Jews said that the Christians gathered for orgies of lust and immorality. Due to the fact that Christianity did in fact often split families while some members of them became Christians and some did not, the Jews accused the Nazarenes of breaking up homes and, quote, tampering with family relationships. But the Jews weren't the only ones slandering these Christians. Loyal Roman citizens, the people of Smyrna who worshiped Rome and its emperors, they did this as well. For example, they accused the Christians of atheism because they denied the existence of the gods of Rome. They said Christians were incendiaries because they taught that the world would one day end in flames. They accused believers of being politically disloyal citizens and potential revolutionaries because they would not obey the law and say, Caesar, Curios, Caesar is Lord. Even today, true Christians are still maligned in many ways. We are called intolerant. We are called hate mongers homophobes, radicals, fanatic extremists. The more secular our society becomes, the more we will be maligned. Once I was asked to pray at a Long Beach City Council, then the secretary called back and said, oh, I forgot to tell you, you cannot pray in Jesus' name. I said to her, ma'am, I'd be glad to come and, and quote a poem. I'd be glad to sing a song for your counsel, but I cannot pray except in the name of Jesus. I said, would you ask a rabbi to pray in the name of Jesus? She said, oh no, that would be offensive to him. I said, well, it's offensive to we Christians to not pray in the name of Jesus. She called back. She called back later and said, uh, uh, I need to tell you that it's all right for you to pray in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but we don't have it as hard as those first century believers did, not yet. You see, to follow Jesus Christ in that town was to literally take your life in your hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. One of the most famous heroes was the bishop of Smyrna, the pastor there. His name was Polycarp. He was a student of the Apostle John. He was martyred for his faith on Saturday, February 23rd, 155 A.D. This would have been during the public games that were held in Smyrna. So the city was crowded and the crowds were excited. I'm not sure what spark set the tradition off, but... Tradition says that in the midst of the crowds, suddenly the shout went up, Away with the atheists! Let Polycarp be searched for. 
Polycarp had left the city because he was aware of the mood of the town in which he found himself serving Jesus. But he was tracked to his hiding place. Polycarp made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to pray. When they arrived in Smyrna, he was brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater and said, who said, Polycarp, repent your sins. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Swear and I will release you. Revile Christ and you will go free. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul condemned Polycarp to be burned at the stake. It is said that the Jews forgot their Sabbath anti-work laws and eagerly ran to get wood for the fire. As Polycarp stood tied to the stake, he prayed, O Lord Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. Polycarp was just one of the more famous Christian martyrs of Smyrna. And this persecution wasn't limited just to that city. During the second and third centuries, the Christian church was subjected to 10 imperial persecutions that lasted 250 years. It has been estimated that there were approximately 5 million Christians martyred from 64 AD until 313 AD when Constantine issued his edict legalizing Christianity. And the persecution of Christians continues to this day. In fact, in countries around the world, believers are persecuted more now than ever before. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, right now, in the age of tolerance, 225 million Christians live in countries where it is a crime to name the name of Christ and assemble to worship him. In the first service, we had two groups from China visiting with us. And most of them had known persecution. Dave and I, my son and I, about three years ago, visited China for about 14 days. Ten days of that, we were spirited away into an uh, upper room where no one could see us, and we taught pastors of underground churches during that time. Years before, Norma and I had been in Ethiopia. At the time, before the revolution, the, when uh, Christianity was still outlawed, and they were telling us about uh, the pastors that we were teaching, uh, were telling about, uh, us about how mature the faith of Christians had become because of the persecution. And then they asked us about Christianity in America. And I had to admit, it's quite lackadaisical. And they said to me, would you like for us to pray for persecution? <laughs> I could not bring myself to say yes to that question. Speaking of the nation of Sudan, Joseph Stowell, formerly of Moody Bible Institute, said, a friend of mine said one of his best friends happened to be in the capital where all the parents had been killed. He said the pattern is to kill the parents, make the kids into Islamic converts, and then sell them as slaves. 
He said he was walking through the capital of this country and about 40 kids whose parents had been killed stood on the town square. The priest of the mosque came out, stood on the platform, and with a bullhorn told these kids to bow down to Allah and repeat a prayer of conversion after him. All the kids went down except one. The kid looked about eight or nine years old. The mullah got angry and said, you bow down. I told you to bow down. If you don't bow down, I will kill you. This child said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I cannot bow down. The mullah motioned to a guard and they plowed the kid down. The kid dropped dead in a pool of blood. But as soon as that kid dropped, eight other kids stood up. So the mullah said, I'll kill all of you. They didn't move. Four of them were murdered on the spot. Finally, in anger, the mullah said, you're not worthy of death. Sell them into slavery. That happened within the last year on our planet. Children were saying, even if it means death, I will not renege on Jesus. I'll take up my cross and follow him. I wonder, could you and I be that brave? You know, all the Smyrna Christians had to do was burn a little incense once a year and say two words, Caesar, Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. That's all they had to do. And the Christians refused to do it. They would not cross that line. Okay, we've looked at the readers, the recipients of this letter. What do we know about the writer of the letter? The author, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. In the first sentence of his letter, the author Jesus says two very important things about himself. First, he says, these words are the words of him who is the first and the last. In other words, Jesus says, fear not. Because I was here before there was anything to fear, and I will be here after the things you fear have passed away. Through all the trials you have or ever will have, remember this, I was present with you at the beginning of it, and I will be present at the end of it. I shall be here all the way through. I am the first and the last. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not going anywhere. I've been with you and will be with you in your midst. And he is with us today. Then Jesus says a second very important thing. He says about himself, I know what you are going through. I know and I'm aware of your tribulations. Please understand, Jesus doesn't, doesn't just know intellectually. He knows experientially, emphatically, what you are going through. He understood what the Smyrna believers were going through because he went through the same things himself, and he knows what you are going through today. Jesus knows what it's like to live in extreme poverty. Remember, he was homeless. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus was also slandered and ridiculed. He was goaded and mocked and tortured, even to the point of death. 
So he says, I know about your pressure. My blood was pressed out of me as I hung on the cross. Jesus had experienced everything these Smyrna believers had. What he says is, your persecution will have an end. Ten days and it will be ended. And not only did Jesus know, he has conquered the things that threaten to conquer us. Jesus triumphed over pain, over the cross, over death itself. And he is willing and able to help us to overcome as well. Well, we've looked at the readers and we've looked at the writer. Now let's look at the content. What's the main admonition Jesus makes to Smyrna? Two things. First, he said, do not be afraid. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for four days you will have tribulation. In other words, he says, it's going to get worse. In fact, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison. And going to prison back then meant torture and deprivation and death. Jesus doesn't explain why. He just says it's bad and it's going to get worse. The second thing Jesus says is, Continue to be faithful. Don't be afraid. And second, continue to be faithful. Even to the point of imprisonment and death. Now, how could they obey Jesus' admonitions? How could they fear not and be faithful? Even through suffering and persecution, even to the point of death. It is because of who said these words and what he promised them. He is the only one who conquered this enemy that comes for us all. They put their faith in him who is the first and the last. They put their trust in Jesus who triumphed over it all and promised them and us eternal life. The residents of Smyrna bragged about their city coming back from the dead. Well, Jesus says, bringing the city back, piling a few rocks on top of each other to rebuild, that's nothing. Anyone can do it. I can bring a person back to life. And I'll do it for you to live forever. They knew that. To quote Mother Teresa, when we get to heaven, the worst suffering we will have endured on earth will seem like nothing worse than one night in a bad motel. We can endure because our persecution is temporary, but our eternal reward is permanent. One time I was in Ohio, and after the service, a man came down and asked the pastor if he could say something. As big as he was, I would have let him say anything. He turned to the people and he said, you all know me, and, and you know my daughter Gracie. And, and you know that she had leukemia. He said, I would run into Gracie's room and, and, and after work and, and, and try to encourage her. And the last time I went into her room, she said to me, Daddy, Daddy, I'm going to die, aren't I? And he said, no, no, you're not going to die. The doctors are learning things every day. And she said, no, Daddy, I've watched the way you and Mama uh, weep as you leave my room. And I've watched the doctors and the nurses shake their head as they talk about me. I know I'm going to die, Daddy, but it's okay. 
it's okay. And Daddy said, what do you mean it's okay? She said, the last time I was in remission, I went to the church around the corner, and the preacher there said, if I gave my heart to Jesus, that I would go to heaven when I die. And I did that, Daddy. I did that. I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. She said, Daddy, there's only one thing that bothers me. And he said, what's that, Gracie? She said, the preacher around the corner said that when you win a soul to Jesus, you get a star in your crown. I don't have any stars in my crown because I've never won anyone to Jesus. She said, Daddy, would you trust Jesus so I can have a star in my crown? <laughs> he said he ran from the room and he ran into his own room and he said he got on his knees. And not because Gracie had asked him, but because he knew he needed him, he asked Jesus to come into his life. And he said to the people there, as you know, we buried Gracie yesterday. And I know she's up there now, and she's got one star in her crown. I read that, or I heard that, and I ran to my hotel, and I got my little computer, and I got the little Bible program on it, and I looked up that verse, and you know what? It's not in the Bible. All my life, I thought that verse was in the Bible, that if you win a soul to Jesus, you get a star in your crown. I knew it was there, but it's not in the Bible. But you know what? I believe it anyway. <laughs> I believe it because it's just like Jesus who gives even a cup of cold water. He rewards even the cup of cold water given in his name. You and I and Gracie are going to be rewarded. And Sperna is going to be rewarded. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are there even in the midst of persecution. You are there in the good times and you are there in the bad times. Thank you for that. And thank you that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. Father, I would ask that you would keep us faithful and help us never, ever to be afraid. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.